important. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list. But there is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hangs from them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, I'm, my name is Mike Stroh. I'm the other Pastor Mike. It's my privilege to welcome you, to add my welcome, all of you who are with us worshiping this morning, especially if you're a, a guest with us. We're so grateful uh, that you've chosen to worship with us. And as the kids are dismissed, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the passage you just heard read. Uh, we'll be looking at that text and some of the surrounding context as well in Matthew chapter 22. But it's considered one of the biggest, most significant sporting events in all of history. If you're into sports, you'll no doubt, even if you're not into sports, you've probably heard of this. It's the 1974 World Heavyweight Boxing Championship, Rumble in the Jungle. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali, two of the greatest of all time. But the fight isn't famous just because of who was in it. And if you're past a certain age, you're like, I've heard of the George Foreman grill, uh, and... This is before the George Foreman grill fame took over the world. But these are two of the greatest boxers of all time. But it was considered a huge upset. At the time, Foreman was favored to win four to one. He was powerful, and at the time, he was undefeated. But Ali famously came back to win in the eighth round. And he did so by changing his style, using what is famously now known as the rope-a-dope. Ali allowed Foreman to pin him in a corner and just wail on him. Many watching the fight thought that Ali was getting brutally beaten, and some even thought he might be killed in the fight. But Ali was carefully blocking, and he was using the ropes to absorb a lot of the impact of the blows. And so it looked one way to most people watching, and yet it was all part of the plan. Ali was in control the whole time. Foreman tired out, and Ali was able to counter and come back and win decisively. And keep that image in mind as we dive into our text and our study of Matthew. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as king to shouts of Hosannas to the son of David. But now the religious leaders go on the offensive. And in our passage, in all of Matthew 22, really, they gather in force to go on the offensive, to try to discredit him once and for all, to trap him in his words. One by one, these religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, attack him with questions, thinking they're in control. Observers may have thought Jesus had no chance, that he was outgunned, that he was outnumbered. But by the end, it's clear Jesus is in control all along. We're going to focus on the last two big questions of this chapter. First, 
they ask him in the text we just heard read, what is the greatest commandment? And then Jesus asks them a question about Messiah. And this question really is a knockout blow because they have no answer. As we observe the scene, we'll see the connection between our obedience as disciples, as followers of Christ, and who Jesus is, his identity. So as we look at this passage together, let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come to you asking you to open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth of your word. Give us um, imagination to enter this story. This powerful conversation between these religious leaders and Jesus Christ. Help us to enter this story. Help us to see the force of these words, to feel the force of these words, to receive the truth, and to be transformed by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So look at Matthew 22 if you have that in front of you. Let's just get a sense of the context before we look again uh, at the text we heard. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So this sort of frames everything that comes after it. Keep this in mind as we go. The Pharisees are not asking Jesus questions because they're curious or because they're interested in his perspective. No, of course, they're trying to entangle him. They're trying to trap him. And first up is this question about taxes, right? Is it lawful to pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? It's a trick. It's a trap. And he masterfully avoids the trap, and he famously says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the thing that are God's. Ding, ding, that's round one. They go back to their corner, and they regroup. Then the Sadducees come in for a turn. They ask him a kind of a trick question about the resurrection. The important thing here is they don't even believe in a future resurrection. They thought they had him. But again, Jesus stuns them with his answer. And verse 33 says they were astonished at his teaching. Ding, ding, round two is over. Sorry, Sadducees, better luck next time. So they retreat back to their corner. And now we come to the first text we're going to park on uh, this morning, starting in verse 34. Look there. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, right? They're in their corner. They've already been beaten up a little bit, right? So they're, they're like, okay, guys, we got this. Get your gloves up. Stop, stop messing around, all right? He'll never see this one coming. We've saved our best for last. Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? On its own, this is a fine question, right? That's one the rabbis debated often in Jesus' day. It makes sense because, by most counts, the Old Testament has about 613 commands. They all come from God, but it makes sense to discuss, okay, which ones are the weightiest? Which ones are the top priorities? But again, don't forget the question is to trap him. Because while some commands are clearly more important than others in the law, they thought they could pin him down with this really controversial question. Right? Any command he would pick, they would be ready with their counter-arguments to show why he was wrong. They wanted this question to spark a lengthy debate, to get Jesus to sort of ramble on and be discredited in front of the crowd. And I know we've been going with the boxing metaphor, but at this point in the story, I can't help but think of Wiley Coyote, you know, from the old cartoons. He kept trying to get the road runner. He never learned his lesson. He would put together these elaborate traps, and they would always blow up in his face. 
He never learned his lesson. You would think this would clue them into Jesus's identity. From at least the age of 12, he had been dominating them in these conversations and with his authority on Scripture. All their best and brightest combined were no match for him. You would think that would clue them in, but it doesn't. But still, they think, surely now we've got him. Verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So much for a lengthy debate or a rabbit trail. You can see them looking at each other like not expecting that, right? They're like, uh, yeah, but, um, yeah, uh, they got nothing. They have no answer. Jesus quotes these two Old Testament texts that were often used in these discussions among the rabbis, but Jesus uniquely puts them together. He links them. The first one is the command to love God from Deuteronomy 6, the passage we heard in this morning's call to worship. This command was part of the Shema, a prayer that pious Jews would pray twice every day. So this command was familiar. It was already seen as central in their life of faith. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind doesn't mean different parts of a person, but it's taken all together to mean the whole. Love God wholeheartedly with every ounce of your being. And the command to love neighbor comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus has already quoted this passage in Matthew back in chapter 5 where he reframes our understanding of who our neighbor even is. If you remember that passage, not just a fellow Israelite, but even your enemies. So basically, if you have a question of someone's your neighbor, the answer is yes. Jesus says this command is like the first one. In other words, they stand together. They can't be separated. And he goes further to say the whole law, all 613 commands and the prophets, all the rest of Scripture, hang on these two. Every other command is somehow connected to these and expands on these commands. To love God and love neighbor. And Paul picks up this thought in Romans 13 where he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I don't know about you, I often hear people say when this passage comes up, like, well, well, loving God comes first, right? And loving other people comes second. For some reason, people really want to make that clear, as if that was up for debate, right? But I wonder if sometimes we're so strong on that point because we're uncomfortable that Jesus puts them together. He says the second is like it. They can't be separated. So we say, hey, I love God. I have my priorities straight. Yeah, I'm not loving my neighbor very well, but at least I have number one, right? But again, that misses the whole point. Jesus says they're connected. Which the Apostle John really hammers even more strongly in 1 John 4. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot Love God, whom he has not seen. See, one of the biggest ways we show our love for God, that we demonstrate our love for God, is by loving our neighbor. Seeing people as God sees them, made in his image. 
those for whom Christ died. And the Pharisees are speechless. They got nothing for once. Because his answer is brilliant. He uses scripture as he has been all along to call them back to the heart. They can't argue that these two commands are at the top. And he doesn't say, forget all the other commands. No, remember, he says, all the rest of the law is upheld. It hangs on these two. As we saw, love is the central command. That's clear through the New Testament as well. So this is rightly a key text for living the Christian life. Even though their question is to try to trap him, even though it's about the Mosaic law, these commands remain central for those who want to follow Christ. But again, Jesus is not saying love is now the only command. We need to be really clear on that point. He's not condoning this modern idea that just whatever feels the most loving in any circumstance is all that matters. Rather, love is a framework to see and to apply all the rest of Scripture. How do you tend to view these commands in your life? For one thing, they help us get our priorities straight, don't they? When we drift one way or another way in our Christian life, these words are an anchor that bring us back, right, to what's most important. Am I loving God with all my heart? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? That's always a good question. That's never a bad question to ask ourselves, but we can never stop there. Because this isn't just a priority check. Jesus cannot only be saying, just try to focus on these two and everything else will work out. You'll be fine. Just do your best. If you've been tracking with us in our study of Matthew, we've been seeing all along we need new hearts. The old way isn't enough. Jesus came not just because we needed a reminder of what God already said in the Old Testament. Jesus came because we need Jesus. And it's so easy, even as believers, to forget that practically in our walk with God. We can never separate Jesus' words, Jesus' commands, his example from the person of Jesus. Which is why the end of this chapter is so important. Let's look there, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Right? So he's blocked, he's dodged every one of their punches. They've got nothing left. And now he goes on the offensive and he's got a question of his own. Verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Remember that Christ is a title meaning Messiah. It's not Jesus' last name, okay? It's a title meaning Messiah. Jesus questions them about their understanding of who the Christ, who the Messiah would be, and who Scripture said he would be. Even though Messiah is standing right in front of them, they didn't recognize recognize him. But he says, whose son is the Christ? And they answer rightly, the son of David. Abundantly clear, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that Messiah would come from the line of David. Remember, Jesus was just hailed as the son of David as he entered Jerusalem. That doesn't work for them because in their minds, this could only mean a conquering king, right? A descendant of David who would restore the monarchy, who would dominate their earthly foes. Verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
This is the type of argument that the rabbis actually used a lot, where you would take two texts of Scripture that seem in some way to be in tension, and you would raise them both and try to discuss and come up with a solution. How can we best understand how these apparent tensions fit together? Well, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, where David is apparently referring to Messiah, his descendant, as his Lord. Jesus' question is, how can Messiah be both David's son and his master? So the question picks up this theme of authority that we've been seeing from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. And how do they respond? Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Ding, ding, winner by knockout. They are so stunned by this, by his response to their questions and by this question, they never try again to trap him with questions. Because they're the ones that are trapped and they know it. Even their silence is an admission that there's more to this than they know. That there's more to Jesus than they've been willing to admit. But they can't even risk saying anything more uh, to make it worse for themselves. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus must be more than they thought. And what's great about this question is Jesus doesn't answer it either. He leaves them in the silence and us in the silence after this knockout to leave us to ponder this truth. The the implications of this question. Messiah is the son of David. Yes, he is the rightful king, but he's so much more. Jesus is implying the answer that Paul will state plainly in Romans 1, that Jesus The prophesied Messiah is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Son of David, but also Son of God, Lord of all, Jesus holds these together. This, what seems like a tension, he holds them together in one person. His authority is not just the throne of Israel, but of the entire universe. And what the Pharisees refused to see was that Messiah came to deliver his people, not merely from their human oppressors, but to defeat the ultimate enemies of all humankind, sin and death. And he could only do that as both son of David and son of God. And this rescue would come not in a display of earthly power, but in a display of weakness of self-sacrificing love. And so when we step back and we see this whole passage in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the great commandments. Loving obedience to the will of the Father with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, giving his life for us. We are his neighbors because he became one of us. We've been seeing over and over in Matthew that following Jesus isn't just about trying harder or doing better in our own strength. Jesus is not just our teacher and example. He's our Lord and he's our provision. His fulfilling of these commandments means his life in us so we can be free to truly begin to love God with all our heart. So we can be free to see people as God sees them. So these commands are not a measuring stick to show us how we fall short. Hey, without Christ, that's all we got. 
But with Jesus, these words are an invitation into his life, into his way of life where he calls his people to follow him, where everything is seen and everything is done through the lens of love, where everything hangs on love. And as we draw nearer to him, the all that gets in the way of this genuine love for God and others begins to fall away. The pride and the selfishness is chipped away as we're transformed. And then love, we find, just naturally flows from us because of the love we're receiving in the presence of Jesus. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the question of his identity is the most important question you can ever ask. Is he just a moral teacher? Is he just a good religious example among many? If so, you're on your own. Just do your best and hope everything turns out okay in the end. Hey, that's that's all we got. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's also Lord of all. And he's the one who came to give his life for us. And see, only in Jesus can we know love. Can we receive love and offer love in the truest sense? And so the invitation, if you don't know Christ, is to wrestle with this question of who is Jesus? And to put your faith and your trust in him as your Messiah and your Lord. And so let's sit in the silence after this knockout of a question. The Pharisees couldn't answer and they wouldn't answer. But we can. We can confess Jesus as our Messiah and Lord, Son of David, Son of God. We can take up his way of life as his disciples, loving God and loving neighbor with his strength and his provision. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we confess with all believers around the world and across time that Jesus is the rightful King. He is our Messiah, he is our Lord, and we Though all the ways that we fall short of this desire, we want to submit to his rule in our lives and in our church. Draw us nearer to him that we might know and receive your love more deeply, that we might be freed to love you more fully with all our hearts and to see one another and our neighbors, even our enemies, as you do. For the glory of Christ. We ask these things. Amen. Stand. Let us stand together.